So that's 2 Kings, uh, starting at chapter 3, verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of, of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep and had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Eden, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Eden. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we can inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shephat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Eden, and the king of Eden went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now, bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says, I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, You will see neither winds nor rain, Yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and the other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time of off for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. These kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. 
And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kerhareseth was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Thank you, Josh. So I'd just like to invite John up, who's our guest speaker, John Greystone. Grayson, and uh, John might be well known to some of you. He's uh, been a guest speaker for many years here at the church, uh, but I know some of you here are maybe new. Uh, some people online uh, maybe haven't uh, met John before. Uh, so I just wanted to ask John a few questions to introduce him to you. Uh, so first of all, John, um, who are you here with and, uh, and what do you normally do? Um, well, I'm here with my wife, Jenny. What do I normally do? Well, I, I'm sort of technically retired. Uh, I spent uh, 37 years working with Scripture Union in a variety of capacities. Uh, retired, I'm in leadership in our church in Chelmsford. I do a bit of writing, a bit of consultancy, a bit of training still. And I just occasionally speak on uh, Oak Hall Expeditions. And I hear this week you are over at the manor, is that right? Uh, yes, I'm not speaking this week because I'm speaking here, but we've been on team and it's been a, it's been a real joy to be back again serving on Oak Hall team. Fabulous. Um, I have a, a little question that was uh, put in the last minute. It was a popular choice. Uh, how's your, uh, so sorry, is uh, if you were a household appliance, what would you be and why? If I was a... Household appliance. Oh dear, this is, uh, mm, yes. I think I might be a toaster. Interesting. Why? Because I quite like toast. Um, yeah, I, I can't go beyond that, I don't think, Chris. Does it help? Well, I, I, I'll ask everyone else, but I'm sure it is. Is, is a toaster okay? I mean, you're happy with that? It's, uh, I mean, I, I suppose it, Jenny might like me to be a, a Hoover. <laughs> She's nodding over there. This is unfortunate. Um, but there, there's plenty of scope. But let's, let's just stick with the toaster, shall we? Fabulous. All right. Well, joking aside, um, looking back on these last 18 or so months, uh, we had you join us online, which is great to have you. Uh, now it's great to have you in person. Indeed. Uh, what has helped shape you in that time? How, what's God spoken to you about? Oh, I think it, it's been a challenge for all of us, hasn't it? And I think particularly for those of us in, in church leadership, uh, it's been a challenge because we've constantly been rethinking, we've learned new ways of depending on God. We've had to learn new skills uh, very quickly sometimes. Um, and I, I'm amazed at the way in which God has enabled us as his people to continue ministry and indeed to see new ministries uh, developing over this time. I mean, we've done things online uh, that we'd never thought of doing online before. We, we've done an online alpha. I've been talking to people who've been doing online Christianity Explored and have experienced more people becoming involved 
than they would have done if they'd been having them face to face. So I think it's been this increased sense of dependence on God and realizing that he can deal with situations that we can't deal with. Fabulous. Well, we serve a great God, don't we? Uh, let me just pray for you as, you as you come to us and explain God's word. Uh, Father God, we thank you for John. We thank you for the, the work and the effort he's put into listening to you this week uh, and before then to uh, hear what you'd like us to uh, understand from this passage. We just pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Would we be a, a fertile ground to uh, receive your word for it to grow in us? And please help us to take on board the instruction that there's to be had uh, and to grow into more of who you'd like us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Well, as I've just said, it is good to be back with you uh, in person. I know some of you are still uh, tuning in online, but whether you're here in the building or whether you're at home, it's just so great uh, to be with you again. My association with Oak Hall Church does go back over a number of years, and it's always a joy to come and uh, to meet with you and to bring God's word. I, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that history is one of those Marmite things. You either love it or you hate it. You either find it fascinating or you find it boring. You either find it uh, totally irrelevant or you find it something which really affects the way that we live today. Henry Ford apparently said, history is bunk. On the other hand, uh, a philosopher, George Santayana, said, those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. And one of the things about Bible history is that it's all there for a purpose. And it's there to say something to us about the way in which God works with his people, both then and now. So when we come to a chapter like this, which looks a bit sort of remote and it's, it's a bit alien to our way of thinking and to our culture, there is deep relevance in it for us as God's people. And I hope that we'll see that as uh, we go through. Now, Dan, a couple of weeks ago, gave you a quick sort of introduction to the way in which um, the history all fits together. And... Uh, I always find the remote here works in ways that I don't understand. I never quite know why that is. But Dan gave you this sort of uh, overall introduction to um, the way in which uh, Israel was operating at the time. Uh, and he explained that uh, it had split into uh, two nations. There was Israel in the north and there was Judah in the south. And time has moved on. And it gets a little bit more complicated now because Judah and Israel are about to be involved together in this battle against uh, Moab. It's even more confusing because, as you can see, uh, Ahab has gone, Ahaziah has come and gone. He, Ahaziah wasn't around for long, and he was a, a pretty bad king. Joram has come along in the north in Israel, and he's a, he's a bit of a better king but not an entirely good king. You'll have heard that in the reading. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. So he did some good things, but not that many. Uh, he is sometimes called Jehoram. In, in, in 2 Kings 8, you'll find him called Jehoram. Meanwhile, in Judah, there is also 
uh, Jehoram. So just live with that confusion for a, a little bit. It doesn't affect too much the, the story today, but just the thing we need to understand is that Jehoshaphat, who is a good and godly king in Judah, is now becoming involved with Joram, who is an ungodly king in Israel. And there are consequences to these alliances of God's people with those who are not uh, godly people. And the background is that in some way, uh, Omri, who was Ahab's father, had conquered Moab. Now, Moab is uh, across on the eastern side of uh, the Jordan and the Dead Sea. He'd conquered them and was taking very heavy taxes from them. Now, whether this was a good thing to have done is another matter. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses was forbidden to attack Moab. Now, whether that was just for Moses or whether that was a longer-going command of God is uncertain. But the way in which it comes across, he says, you're not to attack Moab because Moab are your brothers. And it almost seems that that was a lasting commandment for Israel not to attack Moab. Whether that's the case or not, this is what Omri had done. He was exacting heavy taxes, and Moab rebels. And Joram thinks, you know what? I'm about to lose an income stream here. I can't have that, so I need to go out and attack Moab and bring them back into line. But I'm not sure I can do that alone, so I'll, I'll, I'll get Jehoshaphat involved. So, so that's what happens. And Jehoshaphat comes along. Not the first time he's got involved uh, with Israel. He'd got involved with Ahab earlier on a similar uh, attack. And uh, then he'd uh, actually uh, gone out and um, right at the start, he'd said, let's uh, consult God here together. A uh, few years earlier, and the, the key thing here is precisely that at the outset, he says, is there a prophet here we can bring on board? And uh, Elijah comes on board with a very clear word from God. First, seek the counsel of God. So the, the first thing we look at here is the importance of God's guidance in the situation. Jehoshaphat does it here a little bit belatedly. It, it takes a crisis as they move through Edom and they run out of water. It takes that crisis for Jehoshaphat to say, oh, hang on, I think perhaps we'd better consult the Lord here. We've, we've missed out on something. Now, better late than never, but it might have been much better if he'd done it right at the outset before he even got involved in this whole campaign. It's normal for God's people to seek God's guidance. There's a, a classic little incident of David uh, a few chapters earlier back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, where David is fighting the Philistines. And he initially consults God as to the best way of doing this, and God gives him some very clear directions in 2 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> and he tells him to sort of, uh, David's inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. 
And uh, so he does it. And then a little bit later, and this I think is very interesting, once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle round behind them. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, move quickly. So here is David, two situations, very similar situations, on both he quite clearly and quite definitely goes out and uh, looks for God's direction. And, and that's how we should behave as God's people. So Elijah comes along uh, and he's brought into this. And he's not too keen about this. His instant reaction is to critique Joram. and says, well, you know, why didn't you consult some of your own prophets? Why consult the prophet of the Lord? when you've got uh, all these false prophets you could have consulted. But in a sense, for the sake of Jehoshaphat, who is a godly man, I will seek God's will. And interestingly, some of what he says is direction, but a lot of it is prediction. <clears throat> he says that God will do this and this and this. But he also says, you will do this and this and this. And one of the things that he says is, you will cut down every good tree. Now, back in Deuteronomy again, God had very clearly said to Israel, when you go to war, do not make war against the trees. You're not to cut down the trees. And it almost seems as though here, what Elisha is doing is saying, you know what? You'll go into battle. God will deliver the cities into your hands. But then you'll get it wrong. And you'll begin to be disobedient to the commands of God, which he gave you way back through Moses. So that there's a degree of ambiguity about what Elisha says here. Part of it is very clearly God's instruction. <clears throat> but part of it is predicting the fact that this battle army is going to get it wrong. Now, I guess for many of us as followers of Jesus, this question of looking for God's guidance is a key one. We want to do the things that God wants us to do. We want to be obedient to him. We want to follow his paths for our life. But it's not as easy as that always, is it? And sometimes we have to struggle a little bit to find out what God wants for us. I think there are two sorts of Christians here. There are Christians who actually blithely go through life without ever consulting God and making their own decisions all the time and often getting into difficulty along the way. And there are others, and I think there are fewer of these, who are a bit paranoid about seeking God on everything. And somewhere in the middle, there's a question of being balanced in our approach and living such lives in communion with God that our minds and our decision-making processes are being shaped by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As we draw closer to God, as we get to know Jesus better, so we find that the decisions that we make are, are more in line with his. It's rare I think these days for Christians to get very clear and direct words from God about things. Although, 
last night I was chatting to a guest on the uh, Kentish expedition that we're part of at Otford Manor, and she has some amazing stories uh, about her own journey to faith, how she began to uh, have dreams uh, about Jesus when she was four from a completely non-Christian background in another part of the world. Uh, and since then, God has continued to speak to her and direct her to places and to people where she's been able to have a considerable influence for him. So it's wonderful when that happens, but it doesn't happen to all of us all of the time. I guess many of us will have stories of times when we, we've had a sense of God taking us somewhere or, or wanting us to pick up the phone and call someone, uh, and we suddenly find that that was a very clear direction from God. Let's praise God for those times, and let's be open to that uh, direction of his spirit. But let's also recognize that sometimes we simply have to get on with it, pray about it, ask God's way, uh, look into the Bible, and then make those decisions which we believe in the light of our prayer, our Bible reading, our consultation of other more mature Christian friends is the right way forward. And I think one way of tackling some of these things is to ask ourselves, will the course of action which I'm about to take bring me closer to God or might it take me further away? Will the course of action that I'm thinking about build my relationship with Jesus or damage it? Will it honor God or will it dishonor God? And those, I think, are some of the criteria that we use as we seek God's guidance. It's about developing Christian character, Christ-like character. You know, God's great purpose for our life is there in Romans 8 and 29, where God says, you know, I have chosen you that you might be conformed to the image of my son. God is mostly concerned about our character development. So, guidance is really key, and we need to involve God in our lives, and we need to make sure that we're not trying to run our own lives. Perhaps more of that a little bit later on. And then the second thing that comes out of this passage is that we experience uh, God's victory. There they are. They run out of water. They consult Elisha. Elisha comes along and then says, uh, God will provide. And, and there's water. And then God provides the victory when the Moabites look at the water and they see the sun shining on the water and they think, aha, look, there's pools of blood over there. These Israelites, these Judeans, they, they've fallen out with one another. And, uh, and so they've just sort of gone in and uh, they've killed off one another so we could just go in there and finish it off and of course the, the, they rush in full of hope and expectation and that's not the case at all God has used this incident to bring about his victory over these Moabites and, and, and the battle goes on and uh, they continue to conquer the cities. And the key thing that we have to remember here is that the battle is always the Lord's. Jehoshaphat, on another occasion, is involved in a battle, and he consults a prophet, and the result is, do not be afraid or discouraged, 
because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Same thing, almost the same phrase happens with David and Goliath. The battle is not yours, it's God's. And David goes into that almost impossible battle, not in his own strength, but in God's strength. And that's how he comes out victorious. The battle is never ours, it's God's. And God can win victories against all the odds. Think of Gideon, how he starts out with this vast army and it's gradually reduced and reduced and reduced as God instructs him to reduce it. And then he goes into battle with 300 men. And God gives him the victory. As a repeating pattern throughout the Bible. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4 and verse 6. This is how God does it. Now for us, of course, uh, the battle is different. We are involved as followers of Jesus in a battle. We live in a world that's broken and fallen. We have an enemy who Peter, in his letter in the New Testament, tells us he's going around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. He's constantly wanting to damage our faith and to pull us away from Jesus. So we are, whether we recognize it or not, involved in a battle. And I think one of the great tricks of the enemy is to persuade us that we're not in a battle. And to, th to persuade us that things are okay. But there is a constant battle going on. And many of us have found that uh, during the pandemic of the last 18 months. That somehow that spiritual battle has become even greater. Our, our doubts and our questions have increased. The temptations have been greater somehow. And that's all part of this battle that we're involved in. It's a spiritual battle. There is opposition, there is temptation, there are people who will try to draw us away from our faith. But you know, the key thing is that in Jesus, we have the victory. So there's some great uh, words in Colossians 2 and 15, where Paul talks about uh, the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he tells us that there on the cross, Jesus led all the, the powers captive. Here you are, Colossians 2 and verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So all the spiritual forces that are working against God in the world and against God's people in the world, all of them were smashed at the cross. Jesus has accomplished that victory. And we live as his followers in the strength of that victory. So we can know that however strong the attack which comes upon us, we can win the victory, not because we are particularly strong people, but because Jesus has done so much for us. And that's a, a note that comes out time and, and time again. 
great, great uh, verses at the end of uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, and he's been talking uh, about the present suffering which we face. Uh, in verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, and then at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul has this amazing passage where he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then he talks about things that might separate us from the love of God, trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And then he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors. That's what Paul says. And that comes to us through the death of Jesus. So just as God gave victory to that army back uh, then when Joram and Jehoshaphat uh, were fighting against Moab, so today in our spiritual battle, he gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, you know, that, that sounds great, but sometimes I don't feel particularly victorious. Sometimes I feel a bit crushed. Sometimes I give in to temptation. Sometimes the doubts in my mind become almost too great. Well, at times like that, just hold on to the fact that Jesus has won the victory. And he'll bring you through. It may be hard, but he'll bring you through. It may need the help and the support of others who will just come alongside you and pray with you and pray for you. But Jesus has won the victory. Uh, right at the end of uh, the great chapter 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about the resurrection, he finishes off that uh, chapter by reminding uh, those in Corinth that uh, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. So we see here God's guidance, we see here God's victory, and thirdly, we see God's sovereignty. God is at work here. Who's in charge? Is it Jehoram? who sets the whole thing off and like, would like to think he was in control? No. Is it even uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, a, a, a generally a good and a godly king? No. Is it Elisha? No. It's God who is at work all the way through this. It's God who is in charge. It's God who is in control of these events. It's God who gives the word through Elisha. It's God who gives the victory. And there's a real puzzle in the last verse of 2 Kings chapter 3. And it's very difficult to know exactly what we are 
to make of it. And those people who study the chapter and have written books on it uh, managed to come to totally different and completely opposite conclusions. Uh, and, and that's always a warning, I think, for us not to be too certain. But you see what happens. As it seems that defeat for Moab is imminent, the king of Moab <clears throat> takes his firstborn son, who is to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. So the victory is only partial. And because God is in control, it must be that in some way he has the final word here. So some of those who studied this chapter uh, take the view that what's happening here is that God is actually bringing his judgment on Israel for their sin, for their sin in oppressing Moab, for their sin in disobeying him and uh, taking over Moab. Others think that uh, the Moabites just were so incensed by uh, what uh, the king had done that they just got new energy and went out and attacked Israel. It's hard to be certain. It's, it's all a little bit difficult. But what we can be sure about is that what happens here happens within the plan and the purpose of God and that God is accomplishing what he intends to. History is in God's hands. Doesn't always seem like that, but history is headed somewhere and God has a plan and a goal for it. We like to feel that we're in control, but we're not. One of the pictures that uh, both Isaiah and Jeremiah use is the potter and the clay. And uh, I don't know that much about pottery and about clay, and I hesitate to say anything in a church where we have Femeo with the, all these beautiful creations which she makes. But I do know that it's the potter who has the control over the clay. It's not the other way around. And that's how things work out in history and in our lives. And God is continually working out his purposes. Sometimes through things that we don't understand. Sometimes through things that we find deeply puzzling. Uh, our readings recently have been in Job. And there's a lot in Job that one doesn't understand. But Job holds on to God despite his fears and his failings and his weakness. And in the end, God reveals himself to Job. And with that rather strange incident of the sacrifice of the king's son on the wall, in a strange way, although there are no parallels at all, I'm reminded of another sacrifice outside a city wall, the sacrifice which guarantees our victory, as we've just seen, and the sacrifice which guarantees that we can enter into a new relationship with God where Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross, bearing our sin, bearing our punishment, and opens the way for a new relationship with God. So we need to live our lives in relationship with God. We need to experience his guidance. We long to experience his victory. And we place ourselves in his hands as the sovereign Lord of history 
and of our lives.